Good morning. Please turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 5. Mark 5, uh, May's the fifth month. So we're averaging a chapter a month. That's great. Before we get to the text for this morning, um, I do want to just say a few words about this news that uh, you just heard from Amy and from Jason this past week. So as of this uh, past Wednesday, yes, I, I finished my, my second of two master's degrees that um, together add up to the equivalent of um, what's known as a master's of divinity, which is the standard degree for someone looking to spend their career in vocational ministry, which is just a silly sounding degree, right? You know, the idea that someone would consider themselves a master of divinity. Um, It was a long journey, to be sure. When I first felt the call into ministry in my late teens, one of the things that I had to come to grips with was the fact that I had not taken my education seriously. I was a bad student throughout school, someone whose goal was to just do the bare minimum so that I could get a C average and keep people like my mother off my back. I graduated high school without SAT scores because I never took them and a rotten GPA. It wasn't that I disliked school. It was that I just didn't see the purpose in it. That is, until I heard from God that my life had purpose. I was working at an auto shop my, my first year out of high school, and, and while many of my friends were excited about going off to places like Towson University and University of Maryland and other exciting places, I allowed myself to kind of slip into a life that I hated, getting paid six bucks an hour changing oil, um, and it didn't take long before one day I felt the strongest voice this voice from God, that the strongest voice from God that I've ever experienced since, telling me to look to pastoral ministry as a way of life. Not just a job, but a way of life. I had no idea what the next 18 years would look like, but, but I trusted his lead and I stepped forward. I worked my way up first at community college and then I did a bachelor's degree online and then I began seminary. This past Tuesday, I submitted my final assignment for that, and it was so freeing, but also so scary. Last night was our graduation dinner, and in a week and a half, I get to graduate, and the close of this chapter, more than anything else, um, clearly to me, speaks of the faithfulness of our almighty and sovereign God. It declares to me the truth that he can take anyone, even somebody like me, and turn their life around for the purposes of his kingdom. That's the vital part um, of our text today, by the way. It's, It's one thing for God to turn my life around for my own purposes. Um, as awesome as it is, as uh, it's one thing for God to help me get my life back on track and, and give me a family and a vision for a career. But the thing is, he didn't do it for me. 
After all, lamps aren't brought into rooms just to be hidden under a bed. They're meant to be put on a lampstand. And the faithfulness that I experienced in God in my life is meant to be used to build for His kingdom by equipping and influencing and inspiring others. I say this to you today, no matter what age you are, although if you're a teenager, I'm especially talking to you, in a relationship with Jesus Christ, that's where you're going to find the best version of yourself. No matter how lost you think you are, no matter how great you think you are, in Jesus is life. One last note before turning to today's text, one of the ways that God has been faithful to me personally is by putting me in the midst of a community that faithfully responds to God's grace. And in that light, I need to say thank you. I need to say thank you to all of you for sticking with me and supporting me while I, while I finish this education. I couldn't, I probably wouldn't have done it without each of you. My intention now is to pour everything I have into the life of New Hope Community Church. My prayer is that God grows this congregation in every way that he can grow it. We have an incredible opportunity here and now to respond to this radical, revolutionary love that he has shown us and to trust that he's doing a mighty thing in our midst. For Christ, for in Christ, new hope will find the best version of itself and continue to be a community that others see and find magnetic. The call here is for us to be the church of Christ to a world that is lost and broken. And we're equipped with nothing short of the gospel, which is far more than we'll ever need to be the community that he's called us to be. As a family, a family of Jesus followers, we're going we're gonna to take communion in a few minutes. Until then, I'd like for us to look at the next chapter in Mark's story of the life of uh, Jesus. Mark 5, like Amy said, it's been called the St. Jude chapter. St. Jude is known as the patron saint of hopeless and impossible cases. Today we're going to meet um, a man who is about as unclean as you can think of in this world, um, in that particular context. Next week, Amy is going to introduce us to a father desperate to heal his daughter, a woman who held on to nothing but her faith, and a little girl who even tasted death. A few years ago, we did a Lent sermon series where each week began with the phrase, hope in the midst of something. And for the week that I preached, I chose hope in the midst of hopelessness. It was actually Good Friday. And the, the reason I chose that title was because I was attempting to connect with what the disciples must have felt as they witnessed Jesus' life being extinguished on the cross. Luke records one of Jesus' followers saying, he had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. How remarkable for us to see that in that moment when things looked most dark, the reality was that Jesus was about to bring the revolution of resurrection.
May that be a word of hope for each and every one of us this morning. So turning now to Mark 5. You'll remember last week, Jesus and his disciples had directed, uh, decided to travel across the sea. Uh, On the way, a great storm arises and the disciples are just terrified. They run around trying to secure the boat, and kind of as a last resort, they decided, well, I guess we might as well wake Jesus up. And they wake him up not with like, excuse me, Jesus, it's like they wake him up with these like violent accusations, don't you care, we're about to drown? Jesus easily calms the storm with nothing more than his words and remarks on the level, the lack of the level of faith that the disciples have. We learn that their problem wasn't that that they were concerning themselves with the storm. The problem was that they were all fear and no faith. While Jesus didn't come to make uh, sure that our seas are always calm, he did most certainly come to declare sovereignty over the nastiest storms that we can encounter. This is where we pick up at the beginning of of chapter 5. And I love that the story picks up immediately as Jesus steps off the boat. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, there is some debate over where exactly this is referring to. That's why some of your Bibles may say different things. But it's highly likely that the region was largely non-Jewish. We can tell this by some of the other details that are present in the rest of the chapter. We're going to get back to that in a moment. When he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs, out of the graveyard, with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, you see, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart. And the shackles he broke to pieces, and no one, no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. Now, anytime we come to a a passage that gives us this level of detail, we have to pay attention to it. Don't you find it interesting that even though we don't get the man's name, we do get quite a bit of the context regarding his current situation. Mark doesn't just take the time to give us the information that we need to understand the situation. He, these sentences in this text are filled with emotion. The picture here is one of utter torment, torture, chaos, and perhaps hopelessness. Not just for him, but did you notice kind of who else is mentioned in the passage indirectly, but for his family and his friends. Living in a graveyard in the first century wasn't any less odd than it would be for us in the 21st century. In fact, for the, for the Jews, being around death meant <clears throat> that you were unclean in the most severe sense. The book of Numbers declares that anyone who even touched a dead body was considered unclean for a week and had to go through purification rites. That tradition was expanded so that even if you had um, 
anything at all to do with the dead, you were unclean. So touching something that transported the dead, for example, uh, touching graves, or even going into a cemetery would have made you unclean. It would have called for your purification. And this guy, this guy that comes running up to Jesus, this guy was living in the tombs. Apparently, he had no other choice. He would have been considered outrageously unclean. And for Jesus to talk to him would have just not been done. And if that wasn't enough, evidently there was a serious amount of hopelessness involved in this particular case. Look at the details. He was living in a graveyard because no one could restrain him anymore. This, of course, implies that there must have been somebody somewhere who did attempt to restrain him. And we don't know about who this man's people were, but it's pretty clear that they had attempted to restrain him again and again. Look at the words that Mark uses. He says, no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. It's like Mark saying, yeah, yeah, they tried that. They tried the chains, they tried the shackles to control this man that they loved. Maybe he was their son, maybe he was a father, maybe he was a husband, maybe he was a brother. How painful must it have been for this man's family to try again and again and again to subdue him and come up with nothing. The word subdue actually is, uh, in verse 4 could also be translated to tame And in other parts of the New Testament, it's used in the sense of to tame a wild animal. For it says, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains. Imagine knowing that your brother was sick, possessed by this evil spirit, and you try everything to keep him secured because you never know. Maybe maybe just one day he's going to be better. So you keep on trying and you're going to the graveyard once again to track him down and to catch him and and to chain up your own brother just so that he won't hurt himself anymore. Maybe you try it and, and it goes okay for a few moments or even a few days, but he always seems to break these chains and broken hearted, you have to go away and you have to leave him there because you're out of time or you're out of money. And a few weeks, a few months go by Because you think maybe um, I'm going to try again. Maybe this time is different. But again, he breaks the chains. And you go away and you leave him there. And again and again and again, your own soul keeps getting hammered by the thought that nothing I do seems to help. And you lie awake at night knowing that your brother is being tortured by this thing that you can't explain. And all you know is that he's in unspeakable pain, howling day and night, bruising himself with stones just to see if he's still human. Friends, have you ever known anybody in this scenario? Have you ever known individuals who are tormented by things that even they can't explain? Have you known family members who who love them, who just can't stand it for one more day? Have you never known anybody in that scenario? If you have, Mark is saying, watch this. 
when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran. You don't see people running in the New Testament too often, and you've got to pay attention. He ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. We've seen this before when Jesus runs into demonic enemies. In the presence of Jesus, the unclean spirits are no match whatsoever. They even refer to him as Jesus, son of the most high God. It's funny how Mark gives us the response before the command from Jesus. The demon pleads with Jesus not to torment him when that is exactly what he's been doing to this man the the whole time. And then Jesus asks him, what's your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now they're on the hillside. A great herd of swine were feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him. Send us into the swine. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine and the herds, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned. So now we put together a little bit more information on the spiritual warfare that's going on in this passage First of all, when we put together that he was living in a region populated by non-Jews, possessed by a demonic spirit, living in a graveyard near a herd of pigs, we see that this man was just about as unclean as you could get. And then he tells Jesus his name, and his name gives away even more. Because the problem, evidently, is not that he has an unclean spirit. The problem is that he has, he's been afflicted, a legion of unclean, unclean spirits. Now, legion, that's a funny kind of word for Mark to use there. In seminary, I, I think it was when we were studying this very passage, actually, that... Um, My New Testament professor, Mike Gorman, would say that if you are studying a passage in the Bible and you think that there might be something kind of underneath the surface of the text, you want to keep a keen eye out for words and phrases that kind of turn up the volume. A legion, of course, was a large unit in the Roman army. It was the Roman legions that were occupying Israel, keeping the people under their thumb. What Jesus did to that legion of demons was exactly the thing that Israel hoped that God would do to Rome. See, we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. The thing is, just as the storm wasn't the real enemy in the previous passage, Rome wasn't the real enemy in this passage. The real problem was sin, being exploited by the dark forces of the world. Roman domination was a consequence of the problem, not the source of the problem. Well, what is it, Joe? Are you saying that this really is a case of demon possession, or is it all just an allusion to Roman occupation and really just the problem of sin? 
I'm saying that for Mark, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of light between those things. If you would ask Mark for evidence that demons exist and the powers of this earth are dark, he probably would have pointed to the Roman legions. But Jesus' actions again and again seem to claim sovereignty over the entire situation, sovereignty over the Roman legion as a whole, sovereignty over the Roman empire as a whole. How's he going to do that? How's on earth is he going to declare victory over something as powerful and as mighty and as majestic as the Roman Empire? See, evil, unclean spirits, oppressive occupations, a man who's been ostracized, a family who's given up hope. In this story, Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of it all. So the swine herds, the pig shepherds, ran off and they told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what had just happened. They came to Jesus and they saw the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And the very man who had had the legion and they were afraid Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus, leave our neighborhood. That's a curious detail. If Jesus had just done a great thing in their midst, why would they beg him to leave? Maybe they couldn't bear to have someone with Jesus' type of power in their midst. Maybe they were afraid that he would destroy more pigs, thus hurting the economy. Maybe they were just afraid and did the one thing that felt right in the moment. In some ways, this story is the beginning of our own inclusion into the story, meaning uh, Gentiles like you and I. My apologies if we have any uh, Jewish folk here with us today. But the truth is that this is day one of the mission to the Gentiles, a mission that, that Jesus would solidify with, with the great commandment and give to the Apostle Paul and to others. And for now, though, Jesus isn't going to press the issue. He'll leave, but he's going to do something way out of the ordinary before he goes. Remember that whole bit about Israel being the hope of the world, Israel being... Uh, the light uh, of the world. Jesus is going to expand that job description to some other people, specifically to one other person. As he was getting into the boat, this man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might come with him. I mean, Jesus was amassing followers. It made sense. Gosh, this guy just healed me. I'm going to follow him, right? But Jesus refused. He said, no, no, no. I want you to go home to your friends, those people, those people that have tried so hard again and again and again to restrain you. I want you to go home to them, and I want you to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what his mercy has shown you and what mercy he has shown you. And then it says the man went away, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. So Decapolis, Decapolis meant ten towns. And again, they were, they were largely Gentile. 
Years before, the Apostle Paul is blinded by the light of, of Jesus on the road to Damascus. This man, formerly possessed by demons, becomes maybe the first apostle to the Gentiles. Remember the people that we talked about earlier, the ones who had tried earnestly, who had tried desperately to free this man that they love from the oppression of, from the occupation of unclean spirits. It's to them that Jesus directs them as he leaves for the day. No restrictions this time. No, you, you go to your own people and you tell them what the Lord has done for you. Tell them what mercy has been shown you. And then Mark does this incredibly in, in sneaky kind of thing. The man says, he goes back and he tells his people what Jesus had done for him. See, Jesus is Lord. It is that truth that will change the world. We're going to close <clears throat> our time together with communion. We're going to take Mass, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. See, our communion table here at New Hope is, is open to all who call Jesus Lord. And if you're not there yet, if you haven't yet made a decision to be a follower of Christ, what you need to know right now is that we at New Hope, we love you. We're so glad we're here. We want you to know that you're welcome here and that New Hope is a place for you where you can come not having to hide your doubts or your questions. When we take communion, you shouldn't feel obligated to participate. Just feel free to have a few moments of silence in your seat. I will add, though, as a quick side note, that communion is one of two sacraments that Jesus instituted, and the other is baptism. Baptism is a one-time public declaration of your faith. So if you find yourself coming forward and saying, I'm a Jesus follower, and you're coming forward for communion if you've not yet been baptized, that's, that's okay. I want you to come forward. But I do ask that you consider coming to me later and discuss the possibility of making your faith public, making that declaration of your faith soon. The bread is unleavened, the red is wine, and the white is grape juice. Um, we're going to come forward here like we normally do, but after coming forward, I'll ask you to take the elements back to your seats where we'll take them together. First, though, please stand and join as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. 
For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. <coughs> With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. 